Good afternoon. Good to see you guys. How's your week so far? Yeah? All right. Stay tuned. Just kidding. Um, yeah, it's, it's a, as always, I, it, it's a privilege uh, for me to be able to share some of my thoughts about, about God, I guess, with you. Um, I don't take it lightly. Um, t- today, uh, I'm going to try to, I just learned this on Wednesday. <laughs> uh, I am supposed to teach you about Israel and Jesus, like everything there is to, to know about, uh, about that uh, today. So I tried to make it as simple as I can. Um, but we have, have been um, looking at the Bible as a story, uh, and perhaps for some of you that's a new idea, um, that the Bible in fact uh, has from beginning to end a sweeping story. And um, I, I don't know, it's probably the only thing anyone's ever remembered that I've said since I've lived here. I put, a, I put the Wu-Tang W on the screen uh, when I first came. <laughs> that's all anyone got from it, so I guess that's good enough. Um, but, but the reason I put that up, where, up there was to uh, call to mind... Um, uh, a, a way of looking at the Bible, uh, and it's uh, the Bible as an acronym. Remember this? B-I-B-L-E. Uh, anyone, any takers, what, what it meant? Yeah, basic information before leaving earth, basic instructions before leaving earth. Um, uh, but I, I made the case, I tried to make the case, I've been trying to make the case for... Uh, more than a decade now, that that's not a very helpful way to think about the Bible. Um, mostly because it tends to, uh, in our minds, I think, collapse into like an instruction manual. And most instruction manuals I know of, uh, I don't, narrative doesn't jump to mind. Story doesn't jump to mind. Uh, but it is one of the primary ways, uh, it seems, that the people of God are shaped is by living into this story in Scripture. Part of the challenge is for us, and we feel this uh, acutely, I think, at the moment in our uh, country, is that the Bible is uh, its not going to compete with other stories. It, it demands that we take on board how the Bible sees our lives, God, the world around us, that that is the overarching set of glasses through which we look at the world. And this narrative in Scripture actually trumps whatever other narrative you may have been living by. And if you think, well, I haven't been living by one, you'd be wrong. Uh, because we're all living into a, a, a story, a way of construing reality around us. Whether, whether we've taken all of our cues from the medical industry or the academies, the universities or, or science or just Western culture in general has shaped what we think the good life looks like. And it's shaped for us what we think the point is. And the story of Scripture is trying to teach us what the point of creation 
is. Now, I called it a drama. Do you remember this? Like, uh, like, a, like going to the theater for a night. Uh, you, you see a drama unfold in Scripture. And the first act, of course, in Scripture is creation. And, and we'll see today that the first act of the Bible, that is, uh, this uh, portrait of God as creator, never really ceases to jump off the stage. That this motif of creation is consistent throughout this story. So we've talked about uh, creation. We talked about the rebellion in the garden. And, and you, you might not remember this, but uh, the story of, of uh, two humans in Eden, in a, in a place called Eden, in a garden, in a place called Eden. And they, they reject God's purposes uh, in the world. They don't do it just on their own. They have some coaxing, some, uh, some help from a serpent who, who, who causes the woman to believe a different story about God. And she opts for, with her husband, a different reality. In this chapter, chapter 3, the third chapter, it's amazing, the, good, the goodness and flourishing in the Bible as God intended, um, or the beginning of how God intended, only lasted two chapters, really only a chapter, because Genesis 1 doesn't really describe anything except uh, the, the, the making of the temple. But, but at the end of chapter 3 is the most horrifying thought ever. And it is the humans being pushed out of this temple garden. And God sets at the gate to the road which leads to the tree of life to cherubs. Now, whatever jumps into your mind when you think of a cherub, probably Cupid, right? A little cute, fat baby with a diaper and wings. Um, it's not that. <laughs> Uh, cherubs uh, in, in Scripture are, are more terrifying than that, <laughs> uh, more dangerous than that. But the idea is God blocks the way to the path which leads to eternal life. And it's not as if humans couldn't die. They, of course, humans can die. But access to this tree meant that they could eat and live with God forever. But now that tree access denied. We think, well, that's a harsh punishment for not listening to God. But think about it for a moment. You have now a world wherein human beings, rather than getting their information, rather than learning wisdom from God, rather than listening to what God says is good and bad, they've decided to make those decisions on their own. Would you want a creature like that running creation forever? <laughs> No, you, death in some sense is a mercy so that our reign of terror in God's good world would not go on and on unchecked. But at the end of chapter 3, the writer in the book of Genesis has safely, uh, from, our, from our chairs, from our desk, wherever we're reading, has led us as readers out of this idyllic world where intimacy with God proximity to the tree of life, all of that was there and we're, we're guided out of that world into the world we're more familiar with. Chapter 4 leads off with the couple's children, one killing the other. And then we're shown um, almost like the Bible's first pimp, uh, the Bible's first polygamist, a man named uh, Lamech uh, who... Uh, 
who thinks he's the greatest thing ever because of how brutal he is. And the reason we're showing this little story of Lamech is because it's a window. Lamech is what it's like in the cities in this world that is now unfolded outside of the garden. This is what it's like in our world. We're familiar with that. We're familiar with a world like that. And these stories are aimed at helping us see that a way back toward the tree of life must be opened up. But something else must happen within us in order that uh, access to that tree would even be a good thing. But but this this uh, this is how this this is where we're at in the story. So Israel becomes a part of this story. Um, and that's almost not being strong enough. We're going to encounter Israel for the first time in the Bible today. Um, and we will be with Israel till the end of the Bible now. So we're going to see that the story of the Bible goes from this universal, like panoramic view of, of the world and the cosmic effects of human rebellion, the world in disarray. We're going to see from that wide-angled picture to laser focus with this one family with whom we will journey for the rest of Scripture. Family, this one family is, the, is like the whole of the story of the Bible. And it's, it's unfortunate for us who uh, live um, in, the, in the West because... Uh, the general way of thinking about the story of the Bible in many of our Protestant churches has been to not think about Israel. Israel is kind of that thing we're not super concerned about. There's creation, there is a fall or a rebellion, and then there's Jesus. But Israel's the whole point. Israel is the whole thing. And if you factor out Israel, you are left with a kind of mutated image of who Jesus from Nazareth is. Israel is, is a big part of this story. Uh, now, at the end of, so the first 11 chapters of Genesis, how are you guys doing? Um, there is a story about, um, well, we'll read it, but, but this, is, this is a painting about the story we're about to read. And the title is The Tower of Babel. It's Peter, I can't pronounce it, Bruegel, Bruegel, uh, the elder, uh, 1563, oil on wood panels. And it's, it's, a, it's a painting of what he thinks the Tower of Babel was like. But this is really beautiful because he's painted the Tower of Babel, which is an ancient Mesopotamian uh, kind of deal. It's, it's, it, it's, it doesn't have anything to do with Rome, but he painted this tower using all Roman engineering and Roman architecture. And you can see already, if you look closely, some of the archways in this painting of this great tower are already starting to crumble. And there's parts of the foundation that aren't even finished, and they've already built the top. <laughs> you see, he's making, a, he's making a point here. The point is something to do with Rome, that whatever the Tower of Babel is in Scripture, it's a comment on Rome. Well, if you're lost, stay with me. I'll show you what I mean. Uh, Genesis chapter 11, uh, verse 1. 
Now the earth was of one language and one set of words. And it was when they migrated to the east that they found a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said each man to his neighbor, come now, let us bake bricks and let us burn them well burnt. So for them, brick stone was like building stone. Raw bitumen was for them like red mortar. Now they said, come now, let us build ourselves a city and a tower, its top in the heaven, and let us make ourselves a name, lest we be scattered over the face of the earth. But the Lord came down to look over the city and the tower that the humans were building. The Lord said, Here, they are one people with one language for them all, and this is merely the first of their doings. Now there will be no barrier for them in all that they scheme to do. Uh, so we'll, we'll go on. Oh, that's two. Okay, I think. Thank goodness, I was like, we left off the key part there. Come now, this is God talking. Come now, let us go down there and let us baffle their language so that no man will understand the language of his neighbor. So the Lord scattered them from there over the face of the earth and they had, stopped, they had to stop building the city. Therefore, its name was Bavel, for the Lord baffled language of all the earth folk. And from there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the earth. So this is just at the end of this wide angle view of creation. We see all of the people after the flood. You know of uh, Noah and the story of the flood. After the flood, people, it seems, come together in the plain of Shinar, and they have this idea to build a city with a tower, Migdol, some, some kind of tower. Now, it's not exactly clear what the problem is. Why is God so upset from heaven? But it's, it's almost cute. We get a lot of this in the Psalms, where we see the nations, Psalm 2, for example, the nations conspiring together at the United Nations meetings about how they're going to take over the world. And the text will say, God is in heaven and he laughs at them. He mocks them. And here we have something like that, where it's almost like, oh, isn't that cute? They're building a city where God has to come down and look. Now, now again, it could be that part of the problem is, uh, well, it's certainly part of the problem, that they're coming together to make a name for themselves. They're going to make a city with, its, with a tower which reaches to heaven. Now, in the ancient world, probably the tower was, uh, well, not probably, in the ancient world, you'd often find these towers next to temples. The idea was that the tower would provide like a ladder for the god who would come down and go into the temple and stay. There's even guest rooms, it's assumed, at the top of these towers. But perhaps it's the idea, probably, I think this is a good argument, part of the problem is the people have gathered together and they've thought the gods need our help. We need to build them a tower. And you see, God, like, no, we've got to stop this. They'll keep repeating this way of thinking about me. 
over and over in their cities. They'll keep attempting to make a name for themselves with their new technology called the brick. They will continue to build cities and towers wherein there will be only false understandings of who I am. And so God confuses their language. And the tower is called Babel. That's the Hebrew word for the city of Babylon. There's a kind of play on words here. Actually, the city building enterprise as it is in this fallen world is kind of a joke. It needs to be stopped. So God makes it impossible for them to communicate. But we're talking about the book of Genesis. But what we've just read is the end of a major section. How you guys doing? We've just read uh, up to chapter 11 and we've seen creation gone awry. And we've come to a nice kind of stopping point because I mentioned now we will be encountering a family. But all of the world and its problems will be dealt with with this family. The bridge between the problems in the world, which are great. It's the kind of world where people don't even have a clear sense of who God is and they build their cities based on that information. The bridge from that to the people of Israel is a call. It's a summons. God summons a family. The idea here is the massive problems in the world are brought about by human rebellion. And so the solution, God's solution to cosmic unraveling is to call a family. People problems need people solutions. So God is going to try to call out from this scattering of people a family through whom he can start to put creation back together again. It's high stakes. And it's almost a little overwhelming when I tell you at the end of this whole talk that that people is you. (laughs) But let's look. Here's the bridge from the story of Israel, the ancestors of Israel, and the world that's gone crazy. Look at the kind of team God puts together. This is awesome. I'm sorry, that's really small font. I'll read it to you, though. Now, these are the begettings of Terah. Who's Terah, you might be wondering? Well, no one, none of us know. <laughs> We're meeting him for the first time. Uh, Terah begot Avram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran begot Lot. Haran died in the living presence of Terah, his father, in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans. Avram and Nahor took themselves wives. The name of Avram's wife was Sarai. The name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, daughter of Haran, father of Milcah and father of Yiscah. Now Sarai was barren and she had no child. Terah took Avram, his son, and Lot, son of Haran, his son's son, 
And Sarai, his daughter-in-law, wife of Avram, his son, and they set out together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. But when they had come as far as Haran, they settled there. And the days of Terah were five years and 200 years. Then Terah died in Haran. And you might be thinking, what in the world did I just read? Why is that important? And by the way, what you just read is why most people jump ship on reading the Bible. Because there's a lot of this kind of thing. But the narrative just moved forward quite a bit in that boring list we just read. A whole story was told. Our focus was sharpened and brought to this one family from a scattering of people who came to build their own city to make a name for themselves. Our attention as readers is brought down to this one family who are picking up and leaving from somewhere uh, in what is modern day Iraq. They're not Israelites. They're not Jews. They don't probably, there's no like, uh, Yahweh worship or they don't worship the God of Israel. They're not called because they're awesome, super faithful church going folk or they're even perfect morally. It's not exactly clear why this family would be of any use to the creator in solving these massive problems. Do you ever feel like that with you? What do I have to do with these problems? I'm sure Avram, Abram, I'm sure he felt that. But look, it says that now Sarai, Abram's wife, she's barren. Well, that's going to be a great story. So this is the Bible's way of saying dead end. (laughs) God has called an elderly Mesopotamian barren couple. No kids. They can't have kids. Postmenopausal. This is God's dream team. (laughs) This is who God shoots for to solve worldwide problems. He doesn't shoot for the CEOs. Or who is the architect on that tower back there in Shinar? I'd like to get him on board. None of that. He calls this family who means nothing to us as readers. But we are already like, well, what kind of future is left for a family who's whose wife has no ability to give children. So here's the thing. A list in the Bible will often end with like so-and-so was born to so-and-so and and then so-and-so died. And then so-and-so gave birth to so-and-so and and then so-and-so died. But see, there's death. Death is better than barrenness because death means there was a life to be lived. Barrenness means before the future could even start, it's shut off. There's no forward movement. There's no afterlife if you can't have kids. There's no way of leaving a legacy. There's no way of, quote, getting into heaven for these people because they have no way to keep their family moving. I wish we could talk about barrenness and infertility in the book of Genesis, but that's not the point of this, uh, this uh, sermon. But what I want to stress here is this is a ridiculous choice. <laughs> This is an insane uh, thing to opt for. But it's what God opts for. And you might say, well, why? Why? Why would God choose as a backdrop to salvation a dead end? 
by the way, there are these barren women that show up over and over and over and over, all the way up to John the Baptist's moms, culminating in Mary's miraculous birth. This is a theme. God seems to choose for the thing from which no life can come. Think of the cross, right? And from that place, bring forth life. And it has nothing to do with human ingenuity and making a name for themselves by building a tower up to heaven, making a great church, making a great family group. It has nothing to do with that. It's all the mercy and work of God. But look, it doesn't stop there. We learn of this family, uh, but, but I haven't told you what God actually says to them. Look at this. The Lord said to Abram, Go you forth from your land, from your kindred, from your father's house to the land that I will let you see. And I will make a great nation of you and will give you blessing and will make your name great. Be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and he who curses you, I will damn. The clans of the soil will find blessing through you. Abram went. (laughs) Enough said, I guess. But think of this. Who are these people, number one? But number two, how is this going to culminate in a great nation? You've got to imagine Abram and Sarah. In fact, you don't have to imagine it. You can go read it. You see what the reaction is over and over when God keeps telling them, I'm going to do this. They, They can't accept it. Nor could you, by the way. Uh, Mary, the mother of the Lord, seems to accept it better than anyone else, but even she is very surprised. But he tells a, a barren couple that I will make a great nation of y'all. Now, but the, the text begins, Lech Lecha, go you forth. That's, that's the Lord's greeting to this elderly couple. First thing he says, Lech Lecha, go. Go for yourself. Get up and go. Get, get up and go because I am going to bless you. I'm going to make you a great nation. You know all that stuff about making names great? Remember that whole effort? We're going to build a tower to heaven to make our name for ourselves. I'm the one who makes names great. And I will make a great name of a barren elderly couple right in the face of all creation. But he says there's two commands here. There's two commands. The structure of these three verses, it goes command, so that, so that, so that. It's go, so that, so that, so that. And be a blessing, so that, so that, so that. Two commands. Very simple. Go, be a blessing. Now, we've heard this before in the Bible. Can you remember another creation story where humans had a calling and purpose? I gave it away. It's the, it's the creation story. Look at this. This is hard. What God is doing with Abram is something God has always been trying to do in creation. In fact, um, in Bereshit Rabbah, uh, 14 verse 6, in a rabbinic commentary on, on Genesis, the rabbi has God saying, I will make Adam. And if Adam sins and fails, I'm paraphrasing, I shall make Abram. It's almost like you can look at this elderly couple as a a restart. 
not a reset because the game is still going, but it's a, yet another creation story in the ongoing downfall of creation. This couple is a creation story. God is creating a people. Look at, look at when he made humans in Genesis 1. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image. According to our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the wild animals of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and every living thing that moves upon the earth. How are you doing? When God makes a human being, he makes them for a reason. We could speculate, what does it mean to be made in God's image? There's all kinds of thoughts. I love Augustine's image that we were created for his praise and our souls are restless until they rest in him. There's all sorts of theological discussions we should have about what it means to be in God's image. But let us not miss what Genesis says it means to be in God's image, which is to do just a couple things. Rule and subdue. Humans, are, you might remember this from the very first sermon, humans were created to bring God's good creation forward. And it gets better and better as they do that, provided they keep their eyes on God. But they have something to do in God's good world. They're not just created like, have fun, bye. They're created for God's purposes. That wouldn't actually be a good life to just live for yourself. We know this. Look at in Genesis 2. God makes a, a human being out of the ground. And he says, God, the Lord God took the human and set him within the Garden of Eden. Look, two, in order, two. Look, not just for fun. God made the human in order that he may work and watch. That's what they're made for. He's made to take care of the garden. In Genesis 2, my, my point here is that when God creates people, he does it for his purposes and his own glory. People are created with a role in his good world. And it's when we take God's role for humanity and we jettison it and opt for our own that creation starts to downward spiral alongside us. By the way, work and watch is language used for the priest. That will come up in a, in a minute or two and then we'll be, we'll be done. This is from Gerald Jansen. This is great. The mystery of faith turns on whether the one called will step forth from the familiar sterility and despair of non-being. I'll, I'll explain it. Where he or she has been at home. And venture the risk of the promise of existence offered in God's call. Here's what he means. Abram and Sarai have grown comfortable, I'm sure, like we all do, with their situation. A lot of us have to make P 
peace with things in our lives that don't quite fit. Uh, I'm in my 40s now, and I get what they mean by the midlife crisis. You come to this season in your life where you begin to think like, oh, I'm, I'm never going to play in the NBA. That ship has sailed. But I'm never going to be a millionaire. Like that ship is sailed. I didn't actually want to be a millionaire. I did want to play in the NBA though. Uh, but you come to grips with your situation and you adapt. You make sense of your new world. And oftentimes that new world, it can be very difficult to take one step out of that. Even though it's not your favorite world, it's still the world you know. It's still the sterile world where you can't have kids. I know that world. God's saying, come out from there. Step out from there. And the blessing which God wants to pour out on all the people who scattered from the, the, the tower building enterprise turns on if this family will dare to step out of their familiarity and go to a place they've never been. They don't know what they're in for. All they said is, go to a place I'll show you. Like, that's not much of a selling, like, that's not a great way to get someone involved. God expects you, Abram and Sarai, look here. Go. Trust me. Go. But see, if they don't go, they can't be a blessing. The first command has to happen for the second one to happen. They have to take the risk of trusting God if God is going to use them to be a blessing. They're going to have to step out. Now, this doesn't mean that they earn this. For some of you thinking, oh yeah, that's how you earn God's salvation. That's not the point here. The the idea is that God has made these ridiculous promises. And if you can accept it, come with me. It's really frightening. Have you ever been, think about this for yourself, have you ever been at a crossroads in your life where someone was like, just go, just do it, take a risk, do it. I know you're scared, but just do it. I feel like, I feel like I did that moving here, like with with the heat, because of the heat. For real. I'm like, I I know Washington, it's rainy, but I know it. I'm going to fry in the desert. There's a risk involved. I'm not trying to tout my, my own you know, steps of faith here. But, but my point is that the blessing which God wants to pour out on the nations requires this elderly, barren, Mesopotamian couple to do one of these. One step to get up and go. And it's the hardest thing for us. Now, that faithfulness is what God is after. Abram is by far not the most moral, morally perfect person in the Bible. You can read on. You should read on. Abram is not called because he's a stand-up dude or because he has his quiet time every morning or he goes to church on a regular basis or he doesn't cheat on his taxes. He doesn't speed Smoke, chew, or chill with those who do. He doesn't, that's not why Abram's called, because he's a perfect specimen. And if you read on, you'll find out he's far from perfect. That, it seems, is not what the Lord is after. 
are pious like I perfected my life and I'm the perfect Christian without sin. In fact, John the Apostle will say, you're a liar if you think that. But he's called to be faithful. This is what God's after. You, right here. Look at me. It's what I tried to the people in the garden. It's what I tried to do with them. They wouldn't look. They looked at the serpent. Look at me. Follow me. Listen to me. I'm going to use you to pour out blessing. You're not going to believe what I'm going to do in your life. What I'm going to do in others' lives through you. It's amazing. It's an amazing thought. But it all stems on just this very basic. Okay, I'll trust that. And in fact, Abram's going to try to do some family planning. He's going to borderline abuse an Egyptian housemaid that lives with them. And then he's going to think that that's what God, uh, that's what God meant because he has a child out of wedlock and he thinks, Sarah, God said I'd have kids. Now I have a kid. In chapter 15, God brings Abram out of his tent. He says, come outside, Abram. Look up at the stars. Now imagine no light pollution. No like Palm Springs and Cathedral City drowning out the light. Imagine the desert. Joshua tree, right? Go up where it's totally night sky. And you see all the stars. And God says, that's what I'm going to bring forth from you and Sarah. Not just you and Sarah. And you know what the text says? It's breathtaking. And the Apostle Paul loves this when the text says. He uses this over and over. The text says, Abraham trusted God. And God considered that righteousness. In other words, I can use that. And the world looks on at Abram and his people as they trust God and fail. And he bails them out. And they see and sense. If the onlooking world sees this not perfect family trusting God, and God continuing to bail them out of their garbage, they're going to say, if they dare, there's something there. And in that, they too shall be brought into the blessing. They too, as they watch Abram and the life of faith that they live by just going and trusting, not being perfect, going and trusting, the nations who join Abram in that enterprise find that same blessing from Abram's God. God is going to fix creation through these people. Dirty little secret, that's us. That's the whole thing the New Testament is trying to say. In Christ, the Messiah, He calls a people who are the kingdom of priests. How are you doing? Three more minutes? Four more minutes? You okay? When I say four, that's like, that's like the preacher's ten, but I'll try to keep it to four. Now, now... Uh, fast forward, Abram will have a bunch of kids. He'll eventually have a, 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 a grandson named Jacob who will be renamed Israel. And Israel will have a bunch of kids of his own which form the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, one of his sons, his favorite, Joseph, um, for a number of reasons, is sold by his brothers into bondage and taken to Egypt. Now, one of Israel's kids, Joseph, in Egypt, quickly climbs the ladder there. And he goes from being like a slave and a prisoner to like being at the right hand of the governor. Like he's got a lot of power. And there comes a time where there's a famine in the land where Israel lives, where the brothers and dad and mom all live. And they go to Egypt for help. 
because in Egypt there's food. And that's, this is bizarre. The story of Egypt, it's a, it's a frightening story, but it starts out as a refuge. It starts out as a place where God's people can find food when they're in need. But you know how the story goes. They find themselves after some really bad economic dealings and some uh, uh, egos in another empire-building enterprise in Egypt. God's people, Abram's kids, who were called to go and be a blessing, are now in bondage in Egypt. Cruel, property of the state, treated like garbage, no breaks, no rest, no Sabbath. Work, 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 work. And there's too many of you, so we're going to kill your kids to control the population. That's how the rescue team is treated by the empire. This is the book of Exodus. Now God, you know the story. God brings, because God is faithful to Abram. God brings the people out from that situation. And he brings them to a mountain. And he doesn't just bring them out of bondage. Say, well, okay, that's that. Go live your life. He brings them to the mountain and he reminds them again who they are. Look at this. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out from the land of Egypt, on that day they came to the wilderness of Sinai, They set out from Rephidim and came to the wilderness of Sinai and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called out of the mountain saying, Thus you, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. How I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, You shall be a treasured possession for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. This is great. He brings them out of their bondage and he doesn't just say you're free. He reminds them, I brought you out because I'm doing something in y'all. And if, was again, same thing, if you... Well, just look to me, listen to me and trust me. I will use you to benefit the world. It says you former slaves who are scared and are vulnerable and have no structure to your, to your nation. You're not even a nation. I will make you a kingdom of priests. That's Genesis language. I'm only bringing this up, not so you get distracted and and like, okay, where are we? What's going on here? But to make the point, God keeps doing this over and over and over with his people. He made them for a purpose, to be a blessing. The question has to be asked for us, right? How are we a blessing? (laughs) I think that this, this passage is all about the mission of God's people. This is the idea here. If we sit safely in our homes behind our desks and we don't venture out and take a risk and offer God's love and goodness to the onlooking world, then we're, we're rejecting the call of God. If Abram had done that, there would be no blessing from God's Chosen people. It's pretty awesome. 
God eventually will bring from this family, this barren family, Jesus from Nazareth, a child of Abraham, who will pour out so much blessing on the nations. He will honor the call to go to the barren places and offer himself and be a blessing to the nations. How far will Jesus go to bless people? All the way. All the way. His whole life, he thinks of his whole life as I'm here to fulfill God's call to God's people so that God's people could be forgiven and fulfill God's call to them. Jesus is, Jesus is the one faithful Israelite who shows us exactly what it looks like to be a blessing. Just to go after those in need and help. Offer ourselves even sometimes to our own harm. Uh, instead of funding raves and... What else did you fund? Parties? Like, uh, yeah, to, to give, whatever. But th- this, this, it's this call to a life of looking at God and considering your own life only meaningful insofar as you're trusting in him and being led around. This is the story of Israel. Do you see how stupid it would be to skip over Israel in our reading of the Bible? Do you see how dumb it'd be to quickly rush through uh, and get to whatever our favorite passage in Paul's letters? Do you see why we have to take on board the whole story? I'm just sharing with you like a couple of moments. But as you read the story of Israel... You're being evangelized. You're seeing how God is faithful to the people he called so that they might be what he's called them to be. Let's pray. Let's pray for communion. Let's, let's bring all of this to the Lord's table. and Think of what God has done by calling this family for all of us. Father, we thank you. I thank you, Father, that you saw Abram and Sarai. I thank you that from the mountain in Exodus, you saw all the nations. And you loved all the nations. You don't make Abram better than any of the other nations. You merely give him a role. A super important role. To be a part of that people to be called through your Son to be a part of the people of faith who look to you, to be called into the story which is one of trust and blessing. It's difficult, God. It pushes all of, uh, all of that in me that, that wants to retreat and protect and defend my own comfort. But in calling Abram, in calling us, You've shown a future if we would trust you. You've shown uh, the, the goal of history. You've shown that creation doesn't end in scattered, broken, uh, confused uh, people, but in one people who bring uh, glory to you. We thank you for what you've done in Israel, especially what you've done in Israel through Christ our Lord. We sit at the table uh, this afternoon humble, knowing that we too are not a part of this meal because we're perfect 
or because things are going great, uh, but because you're merciful and you have vision for your people still. It's in Christ Jesus we pray.